0: Welcome to Brainwaves, bringing you the best in tabletop gaming news. I'm Oliver Kinner,
1: And I'm Ian McAllister. And I'm Jamie Adams. And this is episode 113 of Brainwaves. These are the headlines for the week of the 26th of December 2022. Mythic Polynesia conjures up some racism. Gamma President goes west. And tabletop games rake in the cash. All this and more on this episode of Brainwaves.
2: Our first story this cast comes to us from Morgan Davey, a friend of mine and one of the writers on the recent A State second edition from Handiwork Games, amongst other projects. Morgan recently posted a thread on Twitter detailing the problems around Mythic Polynesia, an RPG supplement for the Mythras game system from The Design Mechanic. This is
1: described on its drive through RPG page like this Mythic Polynesia describes the people and cultures of the Great Ocean and is a complete guide to role playing in this vast area of myth and legend. Examining the traditions, myths, gods, spirits and creatures of the Great Ocean, the Polynesian islands are brought alive and presented through the Mithras game system. The book includes an exhaustive overview of Oceanian life, the tribes, their magic and their complex history and politics. A section on staging Polynesian campaigns offers Gamesmasters Masters copious guidance on creating compelling mythic Polynesian adventures at the gaming table.
2: Morgan refers to a thread by another user, that Liam Guy, at underscore B-O-G-A-N-O-V-A, Boganova, underscore, who embarked on a deep dive of the book. That Liam Guy starts the thread by describing the book one of the
1: more egregiously racist TTRPG books in recent years.
2: Now I'm not going to dive into all the details of that thread in the time we have here, but that Liam Guy doesn't get long into the book before pointing out some pretty awful takes. For instance, on the list of folk who worked on the book, he notes that none of those involved are of Polynesian background. Most notable, the artist is European, to
1: which he says, Most notable is the artists are European. I'll highlight this as co-option of our visual culture is very hot water, at least in Aotearoa.
2: The thread goes on to detail many of the issues with the book, including the changing of some of the language in the book to be easier to read for a Western audience, and some of the mechanics of the game having racist overtones. One of the worst things the book does is perpetrate a myth about the Moriorai. These were the native Polynesian people of the Chatham Islands, a small island area of, off the southwest coast of Aotearoa. Jamie will quote from a piece we will share on the subject as to the nature of this myth.
1: According to that story, Moriorai arrived on mainland Aotearoa before Maori, but were pushed out to the Chathams by later and more dominant Maori migrants arriving from Polynesia. To add a touch of colour, the myth makers also described Moriorai as red headed and of Melanesian. Stock. This myth was used to later justify Western colonisation of
2: Aotearoa and the surrounding islands, with the logic being along the lines of if the Maori can do this to the Moriori, then we can do it to the Maori. Morgan goes on to point out in his thread that these are very real and harmful myths that are affecting folk today, including people he knows. The myth is frequently repeated by white supremacists alongside the idea of the Great Replacement, which is the right wing ideology that says white people are being replaced by other races. At the time of recording, Mythic Polynesia has been out for almost a month and no one from the design mechanic has responded to the controversy. We have not had a chance to reach out ourselves. And as far as we are aware, Drive-Thru RPG has not responded to the controversy and the game is still available to buy on the platform. I should also like to point out that we are summarizing a new story, and this one is quite dense. We encourage you to read the thread by Morgan and that Liam guy, and also the piece on the Mariorai people that we mentioned earlier in the cast. We'll put all the links to all those threads and articles in the show notes. Firstly, I'd like to encourage you to really read up on this because there is some horrible history here, and mythic Polynesia, as best I can tell, stomps all over it. We could do a whole cast on just the story, to be honest. uh, And we always feel like we can't quite do this level of investigation justice in the format we have here. Uh, Secondly, stop doing this. Diverse voices are good. You need a diverse group of people working on projects like this. You need people from these cultures to help you out. And diverse voices make things better. If it's just Western voices you've got in your project, then it's going to have that mindset, that philosophy, that eye on it. There will be people you can get from the Polynesian area to help you out on your project. They will happily do so. Just reach out. One of the bits of the thread that I haven't gone deeply into by that Liam guy had a bit of a back and forth from the writer, the main writer on the book who said he didn't need to do any research. That He, he was quite happy doing research, despite the fact wow. that he perpetrated this myth that has been debunked since, I think, uh, the thread says since the 1920s several times by different uh, by different academics so yeah it's just come on please stop yeah. if you're going to write about if you're going to write about cultures you don't uh, you don't have like academic degrees in and haven't visited and, and immerse yourself people.
1: in that culture like yeah. and, and are aware and are sensitive to that culture
0: it is so easy to get consul- um, cultural consultants on these projects these days I know it costs a bit of money, but if you just do your own research using internet search or whatever, you're just going to yeah repeat those myths that have been spread around. And we've seen so many other projects using cultural consultants in such a great way, and creating you know games that are really immersive and you know true to to the culture that they represent or that they're they're set in. So yes, yeah, something. Stop, stop
2: Yeah, We were just talking about Koeti and Crow in the last cast the the Native American based RPG that has got loads of Native American folk working on it artists, writers all sorts and it's had huge plaudits and won awards and all sorts so this stuff benefits your project why not do it?
1: Now we might sound like we're disappointed I don't know but I can't speak for these two I'm fuming cut it out stop it
0: (laughs) absolutely There is no place for that any longer. Absolutely not. And no excuse for it either. People are
2: chomping at the bit to help you out with your projects. You just need to find them. And it's not very hard.
0: (laughs) Anyway, Oliver, a bit of news from Gamma. Yes. The Game Manufacturers Association announced that Gamma Board President Frank West has stepped down on the 25th of November, 2022, after being in the role for only three months since 18th of August. You placed Grace Collins, who was Gamma Board's vice president at the time and who had taken over as the interim president for Kyle Primus. Primus had also stepped down earlier this year on 18th of July. Grace Collins will assume the role of interim Gamma Board president while the association looks for a new board president. Gamma will hold a special election until 31st of March of next year, 2024, to fill the available positions and members will be sent details about this process well, would have been sent details by now on the 30th of November, 2022. We reached out to Frank for a comment, and he said that it was a decision he made himself, and it most likely came as a shock to the board. In addition, he said,
2: This industry has done a lot for me over the years, and I want to make sure I give back to it as much as I can. I want to help others find the success I have and to help spread the hobby to more people, and unfortunately, I think there are better ways I can use my time to do that than by the position I had in Gamma. It was a friendly departure, and I wish them all the best.
0: Yeah, so obviously lots of changes at Gamma yet again, and I don't think this is the first story. Um, I don't know whether the cast has covered similar, but oh, I yeah, do recall we other things happening in the past. So even in this article alone, there's like four, three, three or four different names being named, um, yeah. people leaving and people joining and then leaving again. So lots of chopping and changing, which is doesn't it make Gamma look good And there's been other controversies about representation on the board um, and all those things. So, yeah, yet another story that isn't very positive. And I think we had great hopes with Frank being on the board as well. So shame seeing him leave.
2: I mean, we spoke to Frank early in the year and on stage, he seems like a really smart guy. He's got his head screwed on straight. He seems to understand the industry. And yeah, I had high hopes for his presidency of the Gamma to actually turn it into an organization that really helped people. but. Yeah. It, I mean, reading between the lines a little, and this is total speculation on my part, nothing to do with the email I sent to, to Frank at all. Reading between the lines a little, it sounds like he's been frustrated by the structure of Gamma and, and some realization that he couldn't really do what he wanted to do with that organization, which is a, a real shame. I mean, I'm not, at this point, I'm not actually sure what Gamma does very much for the gaming industry. <laughs> Obviously, there's the convention. Yeah. If you if you've had, if you're listening to this cast and you've had a good experience with Gamma helping you out, please do let us know because we really, we'd we're really actually, <laughs> we would love to hear from you. We're really interested to know how they've helped you out because at the moment it just seems to they seem to have elections. That is what they do. There's been a lot of elections in Gamma over the last year or so, and that seems to be their main purpose. But yeah, let's know. If that's in the case. so
0: let's yeah, let's try yeah. and move forward and and actually yeah, find out what Gamma is trying to achieve and why it's achieving it. Absolutely,
2: yeah. We'd be really interested to hear from you.
1: Jamie, tabletop games are raking in the money at Kickstarter. Crowdfunding company Kickstarter announced that the publicly funded projects on its platform have reached a total value of $7 billion since the platform launched in 2009, whilst tabletop games accounted for more than 20% of this amount. Tabletop games, which includes board games, RPGs, card games and miniatures, along with accessories, account for around $1.57 billion of the platform's lifetime total, and make up over 50% of the game category, which also includes video games and related entertainment. Over 36,000 tabletop game projects were launched on Kickstarter and roughly 23,500 of those successfully funded, which represents a success rate of about 65% and contrasts pretty well against the reported 40% site-wide average. Kickstarter mentions a number of games that helped in its success, including Cascadia, FlatOut Games' most recent board game, which had 9,000 backers who pledged $272,856 towards the project. Projects with the most funds and most backers include the Gloomhaven sequel Frosthaven and a reprinting of Kingdom Death Monster and Zombicide. We have talked about Kickstarter and indeed any crowdfunding campaigns, just endlessly. It's usually at least once every two or three episodes. We've talked about it. Of course it's doing a lot, you know, it's got, now got more... No, there's about enough, you know, one dollar for every human being that's on the planet.
2: Yeah yeah there we no go problem. that's a lot of crowdfunding i do wonder if like if the amount that tabletop games made for kickstarter in the last year or so how it compares to previous years because we've got now we've got game we've got back kit uh got any other rivals around at the moment no those are the main two GameFan, those are the main ones GameFan, yeah, yeah.
0: GameFan,
1: yeah. Are the ones that are specifically designed but there has been like indiegogo has had some tabletop games
0: yeah, there's various crowdfunding campaigns, but those are focusing on on the board game or tabletop game yeah. industry specifically. And we obviously heard that tabletop games, as a whole, you know, as an industry, is doing really well this year. So yeah, obviously Kickstarter doing well and, and pointing that out in its stats is no surprise really. But as you no. say, it just be nice to see what the trend is and whether other crowdfunding campaigns are gaining ground. I mean, Gamefound is working very hard to get some customers off kickstarter backer kit is obviously doing well as well so yeah it'd be nice to hear how they all compare and how it's changing over time yeah i guess i'll all shake out
2: in a year or so because backer kits only very recently launched with a very big slate of companies behind it including Cephalofair with their one of their gloom i think they did the gloomhaven miniatures through back here backer kit so yeah some very big companies there that's enough headlines i think let's move on to the rest of the news
0: Dungeons & Dragons, the popular fantasy tabletop role-playing game, is trying to move beyond the term race and replace it with something else. In a press release published on the website D&D Beyond, the company recognises that race... ...is a problematic
2: term that has had prejudiced links between real-world people
0: and the fancy peoples of D&D worlds. Since the fifth edition of D&D, released in 2014, the company has actively reduced the usage of the term so that it only applies to the game mechanic. In 2020, the release of Tasha's Cauldron of Everything tried to further decrease the usage of the term race by introducing an alternative to character creation. The law of the people throughout the D&D multiverse has also evolved and the company has been more proactive in removing past prejudices, stereotypes and unconscious biases. As its replacement, Dungeons Dragons wants to use the term species in the upcoming One D&D. Playtest materials for this next generation of D&D will contain the new term which was chosen in close coordination with multiple external cultural consultants. Playtesters will be asked to provide feedback on the new term and the company generally wants to foster positive and open dialogue. Now I wonder whether species versus race is going to make a huge difference obviously race racism you know that that is very closely related species. There's no speciesism as such. Well, so maybe in people's minds, that is a step forward. But to be honest, just replacing one word with another, don't know whether that's going to change the culture of the community and 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 the sort of, yeah, um racism and, and other transphobia and and everything else I think we've we've heard happening in in the community whether that's going to Im- improve just by replacing a term, whether the company should do more. what What do you guys think?
2: I mean, I think it's good they've reached out to cultural consultants on this. So they, they say they have, so l- less believing for that. And I do think, like a big company trying to do this kind of thing, trying to like actually change its culture, it, that eb- that ebbs out of the way, it ripples out of the way, and it encourages different folk into the hobby, which push it, like hopefully pushes out some of the horrible racists that are in there and like would that would like say, oh, this is fine, it doesn't matter to me, but. Yeah, I, I, I hope there are, are some good changes here and I hope they stick to their guns on it. They have backed down on this kind of thing before and they ha- Wizards have had problems over the last year or so with saying that they were going to bring in cultural consultants and then kind of later revealing that they hadn't really done as much as they should have. So it's whether they follow through on this and actually stick their guns in it, I think, that it really matters here. I, I hope they do because I think that'd be good. Ian, there's
0: another announcement from Wizard.
2: Yes, indeed. Sticking with Dungeons & Dragons for this next piece, the Open Gaming License has been a major part of the growth of Dungeons & Dragons since the launch of 5th edition. This license allows creators and companies outside of Wizards of the Coast to use the Dungeons & Dragons system to make their own products. The Open Gaming License is nothing new to Dungeons & Dragons. It started with 3rd edition and has been present in every edition since. Many have been wondering how 1D&D, the forthcoming edition of the game, though Wizards would prefer we didn't use the word edition, whatever, will handle the OGL, especially with Wizards of the Coast making noises about wanting to monetize Dungeons & Dragons more, as we reported in our last cast. Those questions have been partially answered in a new post on the D&D Beyond website entitled OGLs, SRDs, and 1D&D. The SRD is the systems resource document that details the mechanisms of the current edition of Dungeons & Dragons. The article assures everyone that 1D&D will include an SRD and be covered by an open gaming license. This is partly due to the backwards compatibility the new edition will have with 5th edition. A new version of the OGL, which will be version 1.1, will be released by Wizards in early 2023.
0: They say they're doing this because... The OGL needs an update to ensure that it keeps doing what it was intended to do. Allow the D&D community's independent creators to build and play and grow the game we all love without allowing things like third parties to mint D&D, NFTs and large businesses to exploit our intellectual property.
2: The new OGL will make it specific that it only covers printed and EPUB material, and the other output like video games, fiction books, etc., will be covered by bespoke agreements with Wizards. The post goes on to say that they will be offering different terms to the different types of content creators as Wizards sees them. They identify three different types in the document. Those making share alike content, i.e., you don't charge for the product, little will change to those creators. If you're selling content, you'll need to report OGL related revenue annually. If you make over $50,000 and include a creator product badge on your work.
0: The the biggest change, however, is a new royalty system for the really big earners. For the fewer than 20 creators worldwide to make more than $750,000 in income in a year, we will add a royalty starting in 2024. So even for the creators making significant money selling D&D supplements and games, no royalties will be due for 2023 and all revenue below $750,000 in future years will be royalty free.
2: It's a little unclear from this post if the 50k and the 750k figures here are before or after expenses.
0: The company finishes the piece by saying, Bottom line, the OGL is not going away. You will still be able to create the new D&D content publish it anywhere, and game with your friends and followers in all the ways that make this game and community so great. The thousands of creators publishing across Kickstarter, DMs Guild, and more are a critical part of the D&D experience, and we will continue to support and encourage them to do that through One D&D and beyond.
2: Now, before we get into like discussing this, I think it's worth noting that the OGL for 5th edition didn't actually get released until January the 12th, 2016. And 5th edition itself was released on September the 30th, 2014. There are a lot of ex- people out there expecting the new OGL to release at the same time as the current as the forthcoming rule set, and that wasn't the case for 5th edition. I mean, that said, there are a lot of folk, more folk, relying on 5th edition for their income than there were at the transition of fourth to fifth. Now, there's been a lot of... How do I put this? There's been a lot of, like, wailing and gnashing of teeth out there on Twitter that I've seen from a lot of creatives in the role-playing game community. And at the moment, I don't see a huge amount to be concerned about. If you're making, like, $50,000 plus or $750,000 plus in a year... Well done. That's still a lot of money here making. Maybe they'll bring down that ceiling for royalties. It's entirely possible. It sounds to me like wizards are going after folk, like going after is the wrong word. It seems to me like wizards of the coast are wanting to profit a little bit more from folk like critical role who they are intimately involved with, but they also would like to see a little bit more money from their actual use of their intellectual property. And unfortunately, why not? Because, you know,
1: capitalism, they want yeah. some, a bit more money from their games. Why, <laughs> I mean, why not? We've talked about it many times before, C- Critical Role is a cultural juggernaut. And absolutely. And the Matt Mercer effect is an actual thing. Yeah. And yes, Wizards of the Coast and their parent company Hasbro have got a lot of money from people going, I really enjoy Critical Role. I'll buy the various books that they use. I'll buy books to start playing my own version of D&D. But why not have a bigger slice of the pie? In fact, why not have almost all the pie? I mean, they already make a lot, a lot
2: of money from DMs Guilds. We've discussed DMs Guild um, before, and they make about, I think it's about fifty percent they make from from that, from everything that's sold on there. So that
1: they're not going to get rid of that revenue stream. Something, something, Uh, commodity
0: (laughs) fetishization. Yeah, Yeah. increasing profit. uh, yeah. I think what's interesting as well is they don't mention what that royalty is, what the amounts no. actually would be. They also mix up the terms income and revenue. Maybe it's different in the US, but over here, revenue means basically anything you invoice someone for, that's the money you get. So, you know, if I if I get $50,000... That's my revenue, but I might be spending forty thousand in printing books and marketing and whatever. So my income then would be only ten thousand. So sure. there's a bit of confusion here on on the finance side of things. And and also, if they, if they are ch- charging royalties, are they also going to support those creators? Because if they're making money off it, does that mean they're going to sort of start building a closer relationship and and supporting them in some ways, other than just you know? Letting them do their own work.
1: The Cynic in me says no, they're just gonna keep taking the money and parasitizing off these people until they wither and die. Maybe whether whether in a business sense or Moving on, in an article posted on fifteenth of December 2022, editor Monsieur Guillaume announced the death of Trick Track. TrickTrack is an online board game community featuring reviews, videos, and general discussion among members of the website. This is the third time that Guillaume has announced the end of Trick Track. But this time, it actually sounds like it's final. In March 2018, Flatprod, the official owner of TrickTrack, was purchased by Plan B Games. Trick Track was then purchased by Asmodee in July 2019 from Plan B. Both times Guillaume announced the end of Trick Track, but both times the website continued. The latest announcement by Guillaume of Trick Track's death lists several reasons why Embracer Group's purchase of Asmodee means it's final this time. He cites the departure of original editors Monsieur Fall and Dr Mops, the shutdown of the Trick Track offices for 8 months during the COVID-19 pandemic, the cost of Trick Track's recent weekly videos which were produced with the help of a Parisian studio and shot on location, the decisions of some publishers not to work with Trick Track after its sale to Asmodee, and the fact that publishers prefer to work with board game influencers directly. Now, shutting down sources of news like this is why we keep doing what we do. You know, we need, I say this, three white middle class guys. Um, we need diverse voices and people aware of those things are not all new people. And yeah, it's not all expensive Kickstarters. It's yeah. not all custom 3D trays. Yeah. We really hope yeah. the writers and staff of Trick Track land on their feet. We need more. We need more of this to remind people that board game is not all this it is it is a luxury hobby but it's not all
0: the gross side yeah, yeah and let's not shut down the news service for commercial reasons by the sound of it what's going on here again reading between the lines you know, let's let's have have more news let's have more people report what's going on from from people who know what they're talking about
2: yeah we're, we're not commercially viable at all so you can't shut us down <laughs> yeah let's keep broadcasting pirate radio baby pirate radio
0: Absolutely. Well, it sounds a bit of chaos going on here. And I've got a story about Chaosium Inc. So Chaosium Inc., the creator of role-playing games such as RuneQuest, Call of Cthulhu, King Arthur, Pendragon and HeroQuest, released a statement about the use of AI art in its games. AI art has recently made the headlines because these software programs use copyrighted artwork as the basis for creating images from text or other prompts selected by users of these artificial intelligence applications. AI art software providers claim that the solutions do not infringe on anyone's copyright and create completely new images. Some AI art applications charge for the use. Cosium Inc. has taken a stance against AI art and announced that they are updating their art contracts, so the contractors have to vouch that the work is
1: the product of a human artist who created the piece and that it does not contain unlicensed derivative use of someone else's work.
0: Chaosium Inc. goes on to say that they are concerned about the ethics of AI art and its impact on the
1: livelihoods of artists and the ability of artists to maintain control over use of their creations.
0: The company hopes that U.S. courts will soon declare that AI art violates the copyright of artists and that the European Union will pass legislation that effectively prohibits the AI programs to freely use copyrighted work available on the Internet. In a related news story, the US Copyright Office, or USCO, maintains its position that AI-generated work cannot be copyrighted. Stephen Taylor asked the office to reconsider its original ruling from 2019. In his request, Taylor stated that he was seeking
1: to register this computer-generated work as a work-for-hire to the owners of the creativity
0: machine. A three-person board upheld the USCO's original decision and confirmed that Taylor's work lacks the human authorship necessary to support a copyright claim. Now we have another AI story about Kickstarter, Ian.
2: Yes, Kickstarter, the crowdfunding platform that we talked about earlier, has also weighed in on the AI art debate. They approach the issue from the angle of protecting creators and specifically the humans behind creative work. In a recent update published on the 21st of December 2022 and titled Our Current Thinking on the Use of AI-Generated Image Software and AI Art, Kickstarter says that they
1: must consider not only if a work has a straightforward copyright claim, but also evaluate situations where it's not so clear. They go on to say that, where images that are owned or created by others might not be on a Kickstarter project page, but are in the training data that makes the AI software used in the project, without the knowledge, attribution or consent of creators. Kickstarter will also, consider the intention behind projects, sometimes beyond their purpose as stated on our platform. And the Kickstarter rules, prohibit projects that promote discrimination, bigotry or intolerance towards marginalised groups and we often make decisions to protect the health and integrity of Kickstarter. The company accepts that AI art
2: technology is very new and concedes that they don't have all the answers at the moment, but they want to continue the discussion of AI art as it pertains to the crowdfunding platform. As part of this new drive, Kickstarter suspended funding from a project called Unstable Diffusion, which was a new AI art generator, much to the chagrin of the people involved in that project. Now, this is another one of those articles where we could basically make an entire podcast series about AIR and interview people about it. A, a lot of people are discussing art at the moment. Um, and we had John Hodgson on recently from Handiwork Games. And he and you know, I chatted about AIR there. And he's got a lot of interesting sa- things to say about AIR. And I thoroughly encourage you to check out some of his Facebook posts on that because he's a much... He's thought about this a lot, basically, a lot more than I have and has some really interesting things to say on that. The consensus mostly seems that these applications are interesting on an academic level but have no place to be used for commercial gain at the moment. We're seeing similar attempts in other creative areas. We've seen chat attempts to become a more powerful chat system that emulates human responses and interactions, and we've seen people create stories with that, that software as well. Uh, yeah. Who
0: knows, what, who knows what comes next after that? We've previously seen um, AI make music, so obviously lots of creativity happening in quotes here. Um, from ai and and as a sort of artificial software as i say i think it's interesting to see what they come up with it's nice to play with but obviously claiming that they can create copyright free artwork or new artwork that can be used in a can maybe even copyrighted by the creator and quotes here I just think that that's obviously ridiculous I mean in academia if if you quote uh, or if you write uh, something an article an essay or whatever, you quote your sources so AI art and theory should do the same, but of course the software probably can't because they haven't got that information so it's it's a real mess another
1: question is the is let's just face it the quality of the art because what is being what are these systems using what are they pulling from because I don't, you know, this is not, you know, gospel, but I was reading something recently. I can't remember where, so please don't jump down my throat. And if I'm wrong, mea culpa. That AI generated art in some places is getting to the point where they are pulling from other AI generated art, and the overall quality, iteration through iteration, is just plummeting.
2: That might be true. However, I'll ask this question. It's something to mull on. So if I am an art student at university, like you were talking about academic tests there, obviously if you're writing academic test, you go from your sources, absolutely. But if I'm an art student, I go to an art gallery, right, and I look at, you know, I look at Monets, I look at paintings, I get inspired, right, by other artists, and I draw stuff or paint stuff or whatever. Yeah? Yeah. Agreed? Yes. A lot, some of these AR art programs, they are not like cut, some people seem to think that they're sort of cutting and pasting stuff together. That's not how, as I understand it. And a lot of this is from my understanding from what John Hodgson has wrote about, about this subject is that they aren't doing that. They're not cutting and pasting stuff and putting it back together somewhere else. They are learning to, they're basically learning to look at in air quotes at art and then produce stuff that looks similar or they're producing their own thing based on, based on what they're looking at.
0: What's the, what's the difference is, is my question there I mean I had the same sort of thought I mean p- even artists paint in the style of Monet and they say this is in the style of whatever artist so intentionally yeah. copy the style and, and the way of painting and obviously you get to a point where then have people obviously fraudulently creating paintings that uh, they pass off as yeah. original art but you know let's not go there so you have that same with music you know the, the AI that's where it's creating music isn't actually copying and pasting pieces of music from somewhere else it's actually identifying rhythms or, or, um, I don't know, tunes and things and and creating new pieces of art. But it gets to a point where that is fine. I think, as I say, you can create that. And it's quite nice to listen to your Spotify playlist that Spotify chooses your favorite tunes for you using some sort of artificial program. But it's a different thing passing that off as your piece of art that you created using this tool. And then even worse, if you're then trying to sell that solution, whether it's the AI software, you know, mm. some of them are subscriptions uh, that you have to pay for, or the artist, as I say, that creates this new piece of art using AI art technology, passing them off as their own art that is not someone else's. And I think that's where it gets very, yeah, very murky, vague, and murky, and yeah, difficult. Yeah. And I, I don't think that that's where the problem is.
2: I, I agree. I think. I think. Yeah it's it's very interesting to, like we said like you said oliver it is very interesting tech there are a lot of interesting ethical problems around it i don't think a lot of the sort of pitchforks that are out for it are particularly helpful and people like john are trying to have relatively calm conversations about the nature of this stuff and its threat to artists he he he's thinking about all that kind of thing do go and read john's pieces we'll link to his thoughts in the show notes uh and we'll link to the cancel Kickstarter as well, so you can read the comments on that as well. It's uh we're gonna I imagine we're gonna be talking about this throughout twenty twenty-three because it's gonna come back uh in the tabletop games pl- industry for sure. How long before we see a board game mostly made with AIR? Not long would be my guess. But we'll see what happens. Yeah, it's a it's a fascinating subject and we could talk about it forever and not come to <laughs> <I'll> probably <laughs> not come to any really solid conclusions. <laughs> Uh, but yeah, it is a fascinating article. Do come and talk to us about it on our Discord. And um, yeah, and send us your thoughts if you'd like us to read out some thoughts, uh, some of your thoughts and emails. If you're an artist and you think it's good, or if you're an artist and you think you're threatened by this, which is totally understandable, write into us, let us know. We'd We'd love to hear from you.
1: Well, as we approach the end of the year... I'd like to say a big thank you to all our patrons on Patreon. You are absolutely wonderful. Thank you for chucking us some morsels from your financial tables. James Naylor, Sean Newman, thank you so much for for giving us some money. You are absolutely wonderful, folks. If you've enjoyed listening to us and you'd like to throw us some money from your virtual table, some crumbs, some financial crumbs, as it were, our page, go to, we have a Patreon. We also have a support page if you can go and support us if you'd like us to continue doing what we're doing. Um, but also, if you like dice, I mean, if you really like dice, and you also like metal, well, well if you go to metallicdicegames.com and use the promo code RollWithBrains, you will get how much off, Ian? 10% discount, and we get a 10% cut of what you buy as well. 10%, 10% 10% of that 10 okay that's fine okay yeah uh, and we also have some merchandise at Sir Meeple if you look for Sir Meeple uh, and find the giant brain collections we have some lovely t-shirts uh, sketches and doodles and lovely stuff I quite like them they're good and I actually need to get some for us so for, for
2: next year We're not quite done yet. It's not been the best of times for nerd-favourite actor Henry Cavill of late. First, he left The Witcher TV series seemingly in anticipation of getting more work as Superman. Then James Gunn, new boss of DC Studios, said they were going in a different direction, and that wasn't going to happen. But do not fear, loyal subjects. Cavill is slated to executive produce and star in a TV series being made based on the Warhammer 40,000 universe. The series is being developed by Amazon. In a
0: statement, Cavill said... I have loved Warhammer since I was a boy, making this moment truly special for me. The opportunity to shepherd this cinematic universe from its inception is quite the honour and the responsibility.
2: it has been early days, there are no details in the series at the moment, but it'll be the first time that Warhammer has made its way to the small screen at such
1: a scale. It was an Ultramarines, There was an Ultramarines film... Uh, which also had John Hurt in it, but it wasn't... Mostly on YouTube and things like that, wasn't it? It wasn't really on a big streaming service that I remember. that's what I'm saying. There was a film. It was an animated film. It had the voice of John Hurt, the great, late, great John Hurt. But yeah, this is truly an intergalactic scale, if you pardon the pun. Now, if they're going by... I'm going to do this. If they're going to go for material that's already out there, my thoughts immediately go to something like the Inquisitor Eisenhorn series, or Gaunt's Ghosts novels, both by Dan Abnett. However, there's such a rich mine to see, mine to, rich seem to mine from. That's the words. It's near the end of the year. I'm sorry. My brain is going, folks.
2: I, I do hope they don't, st- they don't steer away from the fact that basically everyone in the Imperium is kind of awful. And the Imperium itself oh, is kind of awful. Yeah, I hope they don't yes. steer away from that and try the and Imperium- make them like all like,
1: you know, shiny heroes. Oh no, they I will. John 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 Q Guardsman turns out to be the man who meets the emperor and saves the world. Um, yeah. No, just rem- <laughs> a regular reminder that the Imperium of Man in Warhammer 40,000 is a fascist theocracy, and that's putting it mildly. And, uh, and there and are no also good guys. Meant to
2: be kind of a parody of fascist bureaucracies it, as well. It's which meant, yeah,
1: kind of forgotten sometimes. No matter how many but, times yes. Games Workshop say it, the space marines and- are not heroes. <laughs>
0: And and the good news is that the announcement pushed up the um Games Workshop share price about sixteen percent on the day. So that's that's also. Cool. What a surprise. <laughs> yeah, I mean Games Workshop
2: has done gangbusters over the pandemic and this kind of thing is just where they want to go. If they want to grow their sort of like I guess their sort of mainstream appeal and like get get a bit more of that sort of
1: mainstream recognition. Can we talked yeah, we'll about, we'll about, about when his... sorry, we talked about okay. when Henry Cavill was on the Graham Norton show and got yeah. a bit Ridiculed is maybe one way to put it, but just got a bit kind of oh well. well, this is the right way to put it. I think. Bullied. I don't. I don't. don't, I'm that's a bit strong. I just thought made made fun of when he was talking about Warhammer. You can see his passion he had for 40k.
0: Yeah, and And it's uh, lovely
2: to see someone like talk about that kind of thing openly and not not be afraid of saying like yes, I like paying toy soldiers. I also like putting together like gaming PCs. I mean, he he got like huge YouTube followings over over the pandemic. Like. Of, of pictures of like su- sweaty Henry Cavill put together his <laughs> gaming PC. It was quite-
1: I mean, Terry was- Crews also built a gaming PC with his son, I think. Yeah. And I think if it's to be, if I think the story was Henry Cavill almost um, missed the call to say you are Superman because he was playing World of Warcraft at the time.
2: Anyway, folks, we'd like to wish you all a very Merry Christmas and a Happy New Year when it comes. We'll be back in 2023, of course. Uh, We'll put out a date for the first cast once I know what that is because I don't remember off the top of my head. Uh, But yes, we hope you all have a a very good Christmas and a bit of relaxing time off. Uh, We'll be having a little bit of a break from the site and the cast ourselves. And uh, then we'll be back to bring you more tabletop gaming news in 2023. Yeah, Merry Christmas.
1: Uh,
0: Merry Christmas
2: and Happy New Year to
0: everyone.
1: Have a great festive
2: period. Indeed. So, as always, uh, thank you all so very much for listening over the year. It's been a, a real pleasure bringing you this cast over the last few years, and we'll continue to do so as long as we like doing it. If you like what you've listened to, then the best way to help us out is to share the podcast and drop us a review and rating on iTunes. You can also follow Oliver at the tabletopgamesblog.com. All his social media stuff's on there, so you can follow Oliver along there. Our bits and pieces are our Twitter is The Giant Brain instagram is GiantBrainUK. facebook is the giant brain you can find me on mastodon as well i'll link to that in the show notes i can't remember what the link is uh, our website is giantbrain.co.uk where you can find all my writing and if you want to email us about anything in the show any of the articles we've talked about this time around please email us at giantbrainuk at gmail.com have a good christmas and a happy new year and we'll see you in
0: 2023 it was an honor being part of this new series thanks very much for inviting me just wanted to quickly finish that off no worries, Oliver. You uh, are you'll, more than you'll, well. you'll
2: be back in twenty twenty-three, I hope.
0: Yeah, I'll see you there. Okay. Uh All right, thank you. bye. Bye.